Hi everyone, welcome to the Restoring Rapport podcast. My name is Seth Hensley and this is a show dedicated to young believers pursuing the goal of healthy marriage and family. You know, we live in a world where getting married and starting a family is far too often postponed for longer than God designed and pushed to the back burner in favor of less important things. But the good news is that it doesn't have to stay this way. As young believers, we have the choice to prioritize what matters most in our lives every day and to live face to face with God and others. Every Wednesday on this show, I'll be sharing research, conducting interviews, and reviewing articles on the importance of marriage and family for society. I'll also be releasing exclusive content such as spoken word poetry, allegorical short stories, and bonus episodes every Sunday for subscribers. Friends, God did not set us up to live life alone. The truth of the matter is that every minute of your adult life that you wait to marry is a minute of your life that you're not spending with your life partner. While some might be content to live with the consequences of this arrangement, I would argue that those who wish to spend as much of their life as possible with their mate are perfectly within reason and soundness of value to do so. It is my deepest hope that this podcast inspires Generation Z to pursue marriage, become the best spouses and parents the world has ever seen, serve with furious intentionality, love well, and discover the joy of hanging the moon for another. To access my sources, subscribe to the show, or get your copy of my latest book, visit anchor.fm slash seth hensley or check out the show notes of each episode. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 51 of the Restoring Rapport podcast. Super excited for the content we've got planned out for you guys today, as always. This is going to be the first episode in a series of episodes that I'm going to be reviewing. Um, I'm going to be, throughout this series, I'm going to be reviewing an article entitled The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake by David Brooks. This was written in 2020 for The Atlantic. And uh, this is an article that I've wanted to read about or read actually for a very long time. I've read parts of it and I really enjoyed parts of it, but it's a very, very long article. Uh, so I've never been able to find the time to actually sit down and read it. So I'm going to do that with you guys, review it for you. You're getting my first impression. Um, and I'm going to break it into several parts because it's just too long of an article to get through in one sitting. Also, I discovered this uh, article itself through um, the Dad Dad's Building Teams podcast, one of their episodes, which is actually one of my favorite podcast episodes of all time. Uh, they discuss the uh, basically the nature of this article and how it impacts culture today, what it was trying to do. Um, and they, the conclusion that they came to was that it's very good at diagnosing a problem, but not so good at providing a solution. And um, I'm curious to see what I think. So let's go ahead and get into it without further ado. Uh, once again, the article, is, the author is David Brooks. It was written for The Atlantic magazine in 2020. I'll include the link to this article in the show notes if you are interested in reading it for yourself and forming your own opinions. But I'm going to give you my opinions on it today. <clears throat> the scene is one many of us somewhere have somewhere in our family history. Dozens of people celebrating Thanksgiving or some other holiday around a makeshift stretch of family tables, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, and great aunts. The grandparents are telling the old family stories for the 37th time. Quote, it was the most beautiful place you've ever seen in your life, end quote, says one, remembering his first day in America. There were lights everywhere. It was a celebration of light, and I thought they were for me. <clears throat> The oldsters start squabbling about whose memory is better. It was cold that day, one says about some faraway memory. What are you talking about? It was May, late May, says another. The young children sit wide-eyed, absorbing family lore and trying to piece together the plot line of the generations. After the meal, there are a pile of plates in the sink, squads of grandchildren conspiring mischief 
nervously in the basement, groups of young parents huddled in a hallway making plans. The old men nap on couches waiting for dessert. It's the extended family in all its tangled, loving, exhausted glory. This particular family is the one depicted in Barry Levinson's 1990 film, Avalon, based on... Oh my goodness, okay, that oh, that's hysterical, because I, when he was describing that, I actually thought of the family in Avalon. For those of you who haven't seen Avalon, uh, it's a very good family, uh, a very good... Well, it's a very good family, but it's also a very good film. Um, it starts... It's actually about a Jewish family, a Jewish multi-generational family. I've watched it. Uh, it's actually one of the young children in it is uh, Elijah Wood, who plays Frodo in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is actually one of my favorite uh, series of all time. But anyway, back to the plot. It's a Avalon is about a Jewish family who uh, comes to immigrates to the United States through one grandfather and slowly through the generations builds this um, this dynasty of sorts in the sense that uh, they all live together in this like apartment complex. And, uh, the whole film is about the, the interactions and the relations of this Jewish family with one another. Super interesting. It's, it, it cut the plot line covers, you know, the troubles that they have living in such close quarters with one another. It covers the, uh, business endeavors that they try to do together. Um, it's just a really good film altogether. Some might call it boring in the sense of it's not an action film. Uh, but it's got some really great points in it, I think. And once again, the the family uh, that it covers the various troubles that they have uh, in this way of living, and also the benefits uh, are subtly hidden throughout the film. So, um, I would recommend it for sure if you're interested in different modes of family uh, for your family in the future as young people. You're going to be in charge of kind of crafting and um, designing your family as a as a the structure of it, as well as you want it. What do you want it to look like? Uh, what you want it to be. So that's a great film to watch if you're looking for ideas. Um, This particular family is the one depicted in Barry Levinson's 1990 film Avalon, based on his own childhood in Baltimore. Five brothers came to America from Eastern Europe around the time of World War I and built a wallpaper business. For a while, they did everything together, like in the old country. But as the movie goes along, the extended family begins to split apart. It looks like he's going to kind of cover the film for you. Uh, and maybe spoil a bit here. So um, you can pause it here and watch the film for yourself if you'd like to, or you can just listen to his uh, summary of it. Some members move to the suburbs for more privacy and space. One leaves a job for a different state. The big blow-up comes over something that seems trivial but isn't. The eldest of the brothers arrives late to a Thanksgiving dinner to find that the family has begun the meal without him. "'You cut the turkey without me?' he cries. "'Your own flesh and blood!' You cut the turkey. The pace of life is speeding up. Convenience, privacy, and mobility are more important than family loyalty. The idea that they would eat before the brother arrived was a sign of disrespect, Levinson told me recently when I asked him about the scene. That was the real crack in the family. When you violate the protocol, the whole family structure begins to collapse. As the years go by in the movie, the extended family plays a smaller and smaller role. By the 1960s, there's no extended family at Thanksgiving. It's just a young father and mother and their son and daughter eating turkey off trays in front of a television. Wow. In the final scene, the main character is living alone in a nursing home, wondering what happened. In the end, you spend everything you've ever saved, sell everything you've ever owned, just to exist in a place like this. Dang. Um, that's a, it's, it's also, Something I failed to mention in my summary of it for you just a minute ago is that it's also a movie of warning. It's a very much a warning movie of what can happen uh, when we allow conflict 
to basically continue throughout years and go unresolved. Um, and when we allow bitterness to grow in our hearts towards one another and we, when we don't solve problems, uh, it's a very important reminder that you don't end up anywhere good when you allow your relationships to deteriorate and fall apart because you're unwilling to solve problems. Um, so it's definitely a movie that I would watch for that purpose as well. The importance of working things out with one another, not giving up, not going into withdrawal or uh, segregation just because you're unable to resolve an issue. You resolve the issue. That's not an option. And you stick it out until you do. Uh, that's a really important lesson for us to learn in marriages and families, particularly. Uh, this generation, I think our generation, guys, the young, the young one, the youngins, the Gen Z, we really run from problems uh, that we don't know how to solve. Instead of sticking it out, instead of, uh, you know, staking our comfort uh, to the ground and saying, you know what, I'm not going to do what's easy. I'm going to fix this problem with you, no matter how uncomfortable it is for me, no matter how awkward it is socially, no matter how uh, much it bothers either one of us, I'm not leaving, I'm not withdrawing until we solve this problem. That's something that we really need to have, I think, for our marriages and families, because those problems are going to come up that tear us apart and uh, create conflict. And we need to know how to solve them, and we need to know how to sit in the uncomfortable situations together uh, without withdrawing. Otherwise, we're not going to have any living room to sit in, because basically we'll all fragment um, so it's really important for us to, I think, be able to stick it out and solve problems. So that's another great um, point of this film. So I'd highly recommend it for you guys uh, to watch. <clears throat> In my childhood, Levinson told me, you gather around the grandparents and they would tell the family stories. Now individuals sit around the TV watching other families' stories. In the main theme of Avalon, he said, it is the decentralization of the family, and that has continued even further today. Once families at least gathered around the television, now each person has their own screen. Dang, this is getting more and more profound, guys. And again, I think this is coming more and more from the problem of, um, it's almost like we are distracting ourselves from the problems that we have, and that distraction is becoming more and more individualized. So now, instead of watching you know, movies together instead of solving our problems. We just go to our rooms and watch them separately. And that's something that I think is uh, kind of hard. Um, you know, it's awfully tempting. It's easy to do that. But I think it's really important that we admit, prior, uh, preserve the communal elements in our lives and families now, but also in the families that we're going to make as, in the future. Because uh, as young people, we, we're headed somewhere. We're, our families are headed somewhere. We, you're learning now what you're going to use and implement in your future family. So I think it's just really important for us to think about these kind of things. Uh, refuse to give up. Refuse to um, splinter. Refuse to fragment and separate just because we have problems and issues and disagreements. Um, so it's really important that we stay together for that reason. <clears throat> Hi guys, I want to take a quick break and tell you about an opportunity that you guys have as listeners to become subscribers of this podcast. Now in order to become a sub, all you have to do is follow the subscribe link in the show notes found in the description of each episode. And when you subscribe, you'll get access to exclusive material including additional interviews, all of my spoken word poetry pieces, all of my dramatized allegorical short stories, and even more of my article readings, okay? So lots of content will be available to you that won't be available to anyone else. Subscribing to the show only costs $5 a month, which is less than most people spend on their lunch at work every day, okay? So you won't even notice it disappearing from your bank account. If you enjoy listening to the show and you're looking for an opportunity to financially support the content you care about, this is your chance, okay? Follow the link in the show notes to become a sub. Thank you so much for choosing this show to listen listen to. And now, without further ado, let's get back to the episode. 
This is the story of our times, the story of the family, once a dense cluster of many siblings and extended kin, fragmenting even into even smaller and more fragile forms. The initial result of that fragmentation, the nuclear family, didn't seem so bad. But then, because the nuclear family is so brittle, the fragmentation continued. In many sectors of society, nuclear families fragmented into single parent families, single parent families including chaotic families or no families at all. If you want to summarize the changes in family structure over the past century, the truest thing to say is this. We've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. Wow, that is a profound statement. So far, he's the way he's starting this article off, I'm totally agreeing with everything he's saying. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm actually seeing everything he's saying in the family's uh, structures of today. Uh, 100% agree. Um, and again, this is a diagnosis. This, he's pointing out the problem here, but he's not actually providing a solution. He's basically pointing out what's gone wrong. Um, and I think he's right to do that so we can fix it. But we'll see how he addresses what to do towards the end of the article here. Let's keep going. <clears throat> We've made life better for, the, for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger, interconnected, extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and the poor. Totally agree with everything he said there. Um, for sure. I also, I also would point out, though, that some of the middle class and the poor are not interested in the version of the nuclear family or the version of family period that actually in the numbers leads to the most uh, fulfilling life. So it's not entirely um, we can't just push the blame on somebody else. It's also our responsibility to actually pursue family as something that is good for us, good for our children, good for our marriage, etc. Um, so I would point that out. <clears throat> This article is about that. I'm reading his words again here. This article is about that process and the devastation it has wrought and how Americans are now groping to build a new kind, new kinds of family and find better ways to live. Part one, the era of extended clans. Through the early parts of American history, most people lived in what by today's standards were big sprawling households. In 1800, in 1800, three-quarters of American workers were farmers. Most of the other quarter worked in small family businesses like dry goods stores. People needed a lot of labor to run these enterprises. It was not uncommon for married couples to have seven or eight children. In addition, they might be stray, there might be stray aunts, uncles, cousins, as well as unrelated servants, apprentices, and farmhands. On some southern farms, of course, enslaved African Americans were also an integral part of production and work life. Steve Ruggles, professor of history and population studies at the University of Minnesota, calls these quote-unquote corporate families social units organized around a family business. According to Ruggles, in 1800, 90% of American families were corporate families. Until 1850, roughly three-quarters of Americans older than 65 lived with their kids and grandkids. Wow. Nuclear families existed, but they were surrounded by extended or corporate families. So the nuclear family, mom, dad, two kids, boy and a girl, was not the standard um, in the eight, in 1800 at all. 90% of American families were corporate, uh, meaning that they had as many children as possible and they lived in more communal settings due to the fact that they needed them to um, basically get their livelihood and keep up their trade. So that's very interesting to note. Uh, that's definitely not the case today. Let's see how that changed. <clears throat> Continuing with the article here, we have extended families have two great strengths. The first is resilience. An extended family 
is one or more families in a supporting web. Your spouse and children come first, but there are also cousins, in-laws, grandparents, a complex web of relationships among, say, 7, 10, or 20 people. If a mother dies, siblings, aunts, uncles, and grandparents are there to step in. If a relationship between a father and a child ruptures, others can fill the breach. This is a very good point, guys. Nuclear families, mom, dad, two kids, are very fragile. Uh, and I've heard it pointed out other in other places that, let's say a divorce happens. Obviously, that's wrong. That's not the the best way to go uh, for anyone. But um, they do they do happen. Divorces happen. People choose to uh, not stay together. So here we're left with a situation where a divorce has hit this family, and if it's just a nuclear family, I mean the family is splintered, splintered, fragmented, um, blown up on the ground because you have a mom and dad, the two leading pillars in the family, uh, separate, and so you have these children uh, basically torn in different directions. Uh, there's no support system there. If you're just a nuclear family, there's nothing to there's nothing to fall back on. Essentially, you your 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 ride or die. All the eggs that you put in one basket have exploded, and you're left with the broken pieces of your life. And the children are going to have to try and pick those up as best they can. Whereas in a extended family, a large multi generational family, there are a lot more. There's a huge support system to fall back on in that divorce. Uh, the children are going to have access to you know probably ten or twenty other adults. I mean, guys, 10 or 20 other mother and father figures for them to um, have access to. That's a huge benefit of the extended families that this guy is talking about. I don't know if he's going to talk about that here in a second. Let's see. <clears throat> extended families have more people to share the unexpected burdens. When a kid gets sick in the middle of the day or when an adult ex- un- unexpectedly loses a, loses a job. That's also another great benefit. A detached nuclear family, by contrast, is an intense set of relationships among, say, four people. If one relationship breaks, there are no shock absorbers. In a nuclear family, the end of the marriage means the end of the family as it was previously understood. The second great strength of extended families is their socializing force. Many adults teach children right from wrong, how to behave towards others, how to be kind. Over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, industrialization and cultural change began to threaten traditional ways of life. That's something that we've talked about frequently on this show. Uh, you can get access to those articles in my second book, or you can listen to the episodes where I've actually discussed them. My first two episodes actually address this issue, episodes one and two of this the Restoring Report podcast. You can go back and listen to those if you are curious to see how industrialization and the age of technology and industrialism changed the way um, that we see the family and the role of the family in culture today. <clears throat> let's see here. Um, let's see. Many people in Britain and the United States doubled down on the extended family in order to create a moral heaven in a heartless world. According to Ruggles, the prevalence prevalence of extended families living together roughly doubled from 1750 to 1900, and this way of life was more common than at any time before or since. During the Victorian era, the idea during the Victorian era, the idea of hearth and home became a cultural ideal. The home is a sacred place, a vestal temple, a temple of the hearth washed over by household gods before whose face none may come, but those but those whom they receive they can receive but those whom they can receive with love. End quote. The great Victorian social critic John Ruskin wrote that. And this shift was led by the upper upper middle class, which was coming to see the family less as an economic unit and more as an emotional and moral unit, a rectory for the 
for the formation of hearts and souls. So there, that, that transition there of seeing the family less as an economic unit, that reminded me, reminded me a lot of Wendell Berry, who we've also read on this show. Uh, his article, Feminism, the Body, the Machine is a, an episode that we did recently. Go back and check that out for more information there. Um, let's see. But while extended families have strengths, they can also be exhausting and stifling. They allow little privacy. You are forced into a daily intimate contact with people you didn't choose. There's more stability, but less mobility. Family bonds are thicker, but individual choice is diminished. You have less space to make your own way in life. In the Victorian era, families were patriarchal, favoring men in general and firstborn sons in particular. As factories opened in the big U.S. cities in the late teens, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, young men and women left their extended families to chase the American dream. These young people married as soon as they could. A young man on a farm might wait until 26 to get married in the lonely city. Married in the lonely city, men married at 22 or 23. From 1980 to 1960, the average age of first marriage dropped by 3.6 years for men and 2.2 years for women. Which, by the way, now it's up even further. Um, it's way up from that drop. We, we're up almost a decade from in 1960. Most women were get, the average, not most. The average age of first marriage for women is 20, and the average age for of first marriage for men is 23. Fast forward a decade later, today the average age of marriage for, for women, first marriage for women, is 27, guys, and the average age of first marriage for men is 29. That's basically a decade jump. Uh, just a few, a few, few years short of a decade jump. So we've really postponed it, uh, in the modern world, which I would argue has greatly harmed us. As I said, I've discussed that in other art- articles and podcast episodes that you can check out. Well, let's go ahead and get back to this article here. The families they started were nuclear families. The decline of the multi-generational cohabiting families exactly mirrors the decline in farm employment. Hmm, very interesting. Children were no longer raised to assume economic roles. They were raised so that At adolescence, they could fly from the nest, become independent, and seek partners of their own. They were raised not for embeddedness, but for autonomy. Dang, this is just right in line with what I've written in my, in my book. For those of you guys who haven't checked my, I know I've done like 17 plugs in the last 30 minutes, but it's just so in line with what I've said before that I want you guys to check this out if you're interested in the work David Brooks is doing through this article. Again, the title of my book is, um, Deepen the Dance of Dependence, Prioritizing Relationship Amidst Gen Z Individualism. The last three or so chapters of that book are all about that last that last sentence he said there he said they were ra- children are, were no longer raised to assume economic roles they were raised so that at adolescence they could fly from the nest become independent and seek partners of their own they were raised not for embeddedness but for autonomy uh, that sentence is just so profound in the way where uh, children were raised and how we're living today even that's how we think of it when in, in reality there are probably some uh, deficits to that and we're missing out on some benefits by thinking of it that way. So um, check out my book to find out what those benefits are. <laughs> Let's see here. By the 1920s, the nuclear family with a male breadwinner had replaced the corporate family as the dominant family form. By 1960, so that's happened by the 1920s. Um, by 1967, 77.5% of all children were living with their two parents who were married and apart from their extended family. The short, happy life of the nuclear family is his next subheading here. So he's going to basically, I think he's going to go into how long this lasted, because I don't think David Brooks would say that the nuclear family is the uh, standard today. At least it is in a lot of uh, perhaps Bible Belt, Midwestern um, Christian circles, but the nuclear family is presented as the, the way to go. But I don't think that's the the uh, uh, prevailing 
idea of family today. I think there are a lot of others uh, people are really advocating for uh, gay marriage. So that means that you have two moms or two dads in a home. And uh, one of them is theoretically trying to fill the role of a mother or father in the home. Um, so the people are really advocating for other forms of family um, that aren't the nuclear family. And again, I would say that those do not, those simply do not provide the uh, benefits in the numbers that I've seen. There, you, there might be other numbers. Again, this is a short social experiment. We haven't been going that long, but I wouldn't say. I think the number one uh, indicator for a for preventing a lot of harm for kids today is a present father and a mother in the home. Um, so when you remove one of those or either of those or tamper with the family structure in any way, I think you're playing a dangerous game because when you do that, I think we start seeing kids who come from broken homes doing horrible things. And it's a really strong correlation. It's like a, a huge percent of kids who come from broken homes grow up to do very, very broken things. So I think it's really important for us to uh, preserve the family. Um, in in its its true sense, whatever that family is, and again, I would say that is a uh, present mother and father at the very least. At the very least, a present mother and father. David Brooks here is arguing that uh, families were more stable when there were a lot more extended uh, families and a lot more multi generational families hol- holding, you know, up to ten to twenty adults other than the mother and father present in a child's life. And again, you, there's that famous phrase: "It takes a village to raise a child," or "It takes a village to raise uh, a family." And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So I, I don't think we need to be uh, tampering with the nuclear family structure at all. I think that mom and dad is an essential, essential, absolutely essential uh, source for families today. But I think that maybe we could add to that by having a lot more adults, mentors, um, extended family involved in the family rearing process. And I think that could do nothing to hurt our, uh, the way children are growing up for sure. But again, I would not tamper. I would not tamper. I cannot underemphasize that enough. I would not tamper with a present mother and father, biological male, biological female in the home, uh, simply because when you take one of those away, the numbers show us a lot of, a lot of really disturbing things, uh, when it relates to children growing up without either one of those. So I think we definitely don't need to tamper with that. Let's go ahead and get into his, uh, section here. For a time, it all seemed to work. From 1950 to 1965, divorce rates dropped, fertility rates rose, and the American nuclear family seemed to be in wonderful shape, and most people seemed prosperous and happy. In these years, a kind of cult formed around this type of family, what McCall's the, what McCall's, the leading women's magazine of the day called, quote-unquote, togetherness. Healthy people lived in two-parent families. In the 1957 survey, more than half of the respondents said that unmarried people were sick, immoral, and neurotic. Interesting. I wouldn't go that far. I would say they, um, most of them probably aren't pursuing what they should in the sense of uh, they're probably living with some consequences of going unmarried and choosing to go unmarried if they're a person that's called to be, be married and isn't. <laughs> I mean, there are def- we've talked about those uh, consequences other places in this show. You can't just dodge marriage if you're made for it and say, I'll go without consequences because there will be consequences. So that's what I would say to his uh, claim there. During this period, a certain family ideal became engraved in our minds, a married couple with 2.5 kids. When we think about the American family, many of us still revert to this ideal. When we have debates about how to strengthen the family, we are thinking of the two-parent nuclear family with one or two kids probably living in some detached family home on some suburban street. We take it as the norm, even though it wasn't the way most humans lived during the tens of thousands of years before 1950, and it isn't the way most humans have lived during the 55 years since 1965. That's a very good point. So he's basically saying there, when we talk about strengthening family, we're, we're thinking of that 
1920s uh, nuclear family with mom, dad, two kids living in a suburb. When in really, reality, for most of history, it's been much more than that. There have been two present mother, present mother and father, biological mother and father in the home. Yes, but it was also much more than that. Um, and when we take that away, perhaps we started seeing some consequences. So when you tamper, I, I really, I'm a big fan of not tampering with the way family is naturally designed to be. And for most of history, he's, David Brooks is arguing, and I would agree with him, that family is much more than a mom, dad, and two kids. It's much more extended, much more, um, I, I hate to use the word diverse, uh, just because of how my, my professors use that word. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, um, it's much more extended. It's much more elaborate. It's much more, it's a bigger structure. It's a more elaborate structure that provides more for children, especially, but just the whole family in general is what I would say. <clears throat> Let's see here. Let's continue right on. Today, only a minority of American households are traditional two-parent nuclear families. See, there it is. Okay, so he's probably found some numbers for that. I would assume he's going to include his sources at the bottom of this article that we can see here. Uh, Today, only a minority of American households are traditional two-parent nuclear families, and only one-third of American individuals live in this kind of family. Wow. Okay, so we're down to a third, guys. We're down to a third of American individuals living in in the family model that most benefits children. That should uh, be an eye-opener, guys. And that is directly connected, I would say, to the declining marriage numbers and how we're pushing, we're getting married less and we're pushing it further and further and further into our future. Um, you know, that means le- there's going to be less families. And since family is the number one preventative for kids growing up and being incarcerated and addicted to drugs and shooting up schools, I'd say we're headed for a problem. Definitely headed for a problem. And in some ways, in the middle of the problem that we we started yesterday, last year, 10 years ago, um, I think it's really important for us to preserve the family. That's what the show's all about, uh, pursuing the goal of marriage and family for young believers, because it's so important. It pre- It's the preventative. It's the solution for so many problems. And when you throw it out, when you tamper with it, when you tamper with the solution of marriage or the solution of family, um, you, you're, you're, in a, you're basically headed for a train wreck. So it's really important that we preserve this, guys. It's really, really important. Um, t- let's continue with the article here today. Today, only a minority of... Oh, I already read that. Let's see. From... It was freakishly, it was a freakishly historical moment when all of society conspired wittingly or not to obscure the essential fragility of the nuclear family. Wow. For one thing, most women were relegated to the home. Many corporations well into the mid 20th century barred married women from employment. Companies would hire single women, but if those single women got married, they would have to quit. Demeaning and disempowering treatment of women was rampant rampant. Women spend enormous numbers of hours trapped inside a home under the under the headship of their husband raising children. For another thing, nuclear families in this area, era were much more connected to other nuclear families than they are today, constituting of a quote-unquote modified extended family, as the sociologist Eugene Litwick calls it, a coalition of nuclear families in a state of mutual dependence. Mm, that sounds very appealing. Even as late as the 1950s, Uh, I'm just going to read that again. A coalition of nuclear families in a state of mutual dependence. That right there sounds like the epitome of health to me. A number of nuclear families with present mother and father, two children, or, well, not even going to give a number, just children, as many as you can, really, or as many as you have. It's not even, I'm not even addressing that. A coalition of nuclear families, mom, dad, uh, present in the home, a coalition of those families living in a state of mutual dependence, relying on one another, uh, serving one another, and meeting each other's needs. That sounds like the ideal way to live uh, for me, just based out of everything he said so far. A coalition of nuclear families in a state of mutual dependence sounds like the best for me. That's the best thing I've heard in a while, uh, for sure. 
Even as late as the 1950s, these are his words, before television and air conditioning had fully caught on, people continued to live on one another's front porches and they were part of one another's lives. Friends felt free to discipline one another's children. In his book, The Lost City, the journalist Alan Ehrenholt describes life in the mid-century Chicago and its suburbs. This is his words. Alan Ehrenholt's words. To be a young homeowner in a suburb like Elmhurst in the 1950s was to participate in a communal enterprise that only the most determined loner could escape. Barbecues, coffee clatches, volleyball games, babysitting co-ops, and constant bartering of household goods, child-rearing by the nearest parents who happen to be around, neighbors wandering through the door at any hour without knocking, all these were devices by which young adults who had been set down in a wilderness of tract homes made a community. It was a life lived in public. So it sounds very much more interconnected, much more uh, dependent even, much more... um, socially intricate than it is today basically today we're very withdrawn and reserved uh, self-sustaining uh, self de- self-dependent uh, autonomous we're very uh, we can do it ourselves instead of relying on one another and i don't think that's good in a lot of ways continuing on here finally conditions in the wider society were ideal for family stability the post-war period was a high watermark of church attendance unionization social trust, and mass prosperity, all things that correlate with family cohesion. A man could relatively easily find a job that would allow him to be the breadwinner for a single-income family. By 1961, the median American man, ages eight, age eight, age, I'm sorry, age 25 to 29, was earning nearly 400% more than his father had earned at about the same age. Wow. In short, the period from 1950 to 1965 demonstrated that that a stable society can be built around nuclear families. So long as women are relegated to the household, nuclear families are so intertwined that they are basically extended families by another name, and every economic and social condition in society is working together to support the institution. Um, He keeps mentioning the fact that women were... Uh, detained to the home basically by either the husband or some social pressure that he hasn't really put his finger on. Um, I would point out several things there. Uh, today it's actually, we both parents have kind of fled from the home and not just the father uh, moving to the workplace. We now have mother and father moving to separate workplaces where they pursue their own careers and leave their ch- children to the loving care of the government through the public school system. This is a recipe for what I would say is definitely going to be a disaster in the future. We have to be more integrated, more involved in the lives of our children, guys. Uh, when we grow up, when we, when we Gen Zers, when we young, youngins grow up, it's going to be really important that we prioritize family time that we have a mission for our family to go on as a unit, as a whole, uh, that we are not uh, mother and father pursuing different things, their own careers, and coming home just to have dinner and go to bed. That's a very, very bad idea of what it means to be a family. It's not It's not deep. It's superficial. It's really something out of necessity, if you think about it. It's really uh, undervaluing family. It's making it something it was never intended to be. Uh, families are powerful, like, units, that can accomplish so much, so many things for society. David Brooks said a minute ago that they were the social building block of this country, of uh, a stable society is built by nuclear families, he said. So when you make it less than that, when you make it um, just something that arises out of necessity of getting married and falling in love and having sex and having children, therefore, when you make it just something that uh, happens, that you have to cope with, <clears throat> we're really undervaluing what family is supposed to be. And in doing so, uh, it's definitely it's definitely a horrible idea, in my opinion, to uh, pursue what we have today 
the idea that a man and woman can just leave the home for eight hours a day, the majority of our waking hours, spending that apart uh, and sending our children to a government institution to be educated. That is just just not a good idea of a family. I don't think at all. Don't think at all. I don't think giving ourselves four hours in the evening to uh, do homework and take a bath is my idea of quality time for a family. That's definitely not a good idea at all. So I would definitely not um, be in support of that. That's that's not even the nuclear family. That's something we've kind of done in the modern world. That's a very recent experiment uh, for family family structure, and I wouldn't say that's going anywhere good. So I, per- personally, I will not. I do not want to build a family like that when I get older. Um, that will not be the family that I seek to build. I will build a family of integration, uh, external reliance, um, mutual dependence. That's the kind of family I want. A family that spends time together, builds connection together, loves one another, spends the majority of our time with one another. I mean, let's let's be honest, guys. You've only got so much time on this earth, uh, and you're giving that to your workplace over your family. Definitely think that reflects a large a large amount of misplaced priority on the part of the previous generation. And guys, we can change that. We can change that as young believers pursuing the goal of healthy marriage and family, we can pursue something different. We can pursue more time with our family, more time with our spouse, uh, more time pursuing what really matters. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this today's episode. Once again, we're going to continue with this article uh, in the future episodes, in the future um, episodes in this series. Um, but until then, I'm going to go ahead and cut it short because I've been reading for a while and this article, as I said, is very long. So we're going to pick up with his next heading in the next episode. Be sure to check that out when it comes out. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next time.